0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Charlie Coleman, the author of The Spirit of French Capitalism, Economic Theology in the Age of Enlightenment, and the book was published by Stanford University Press in 2021. Hi there, Charlie.
0: Hi, thanks very much for having me.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Charlie, I'm just um, asking everybody I speak with for the last almost two years now, where you are and how you're doing during this era of global pandemic. You want to fill us in a bit?
0: Sure. Um, I'm certainly better than I was a year ago, perhaps even six months ago. Uh, I imagine like everyone, I am gradually settling into the new abnormal, whatever that looks like or is going to look like. Mm-hmm. We resumed in-person teaching, so uh, it's been a relief uh, to actually see and speak to my students.
1: Yeah. The other question I ask everybody, Charlie, is why France? How did you come to be a historian of, of France?
0: I suppose, well, it's like Hugo said, I mean, I blame Rousseau. I <laughs> <laughs> In college, I had the good fortune of working with Gary Cates, hmm. who introduced me to the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, and really intellectual history more generally, and so it was through the philosophy and political thought of the 18th century that I that I entered the field. And why France for this particular book? It has to do first with the, the sheer dominance of France as a geopolitical and economic power in the 18th century, mm. uh, but also with the absolutely indispensable role played by the French Catholic Church in financial affairs uh, throughout the period the book covers, the 17th and the 18th centuries.
1: I wonder, Charlie, about the relationship of this project to your first book, The Virtues of Abandon, An Anti-Individualist History of the French Enlightenment, and that came out with Stanford as well in 2014. Can you tell us a little bit about how you understand the two projects as related or not, you know, how one may have led to the other.
0: Already in the first book, I was starting to think about goods along multiple axes, not only material, but also spiritual and existential. And so in this book, I wanted to flesh out even more the contours of this spiritual economy and how it related and intersected and really intervened in the economy qua economy, the material economy, as we conventionally understand it. That first book traces uh, what I view as anti-individualist currents of thinking about the self and attenuating the self's relationship to not only material goods, but also to existential and spiritual goods. Uh, And it certainly moves into the terrain of political economy in the later chapters, but spends really the lion's share of the first uh, part of the book discussing theology and philosophy. And so I knew I had more that I wanted to say about the history of political economy and more particularly how it related to what I came to understand as a spiritual economy that coalesced in Catholic teaching in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. I began actually with material related to John Law's system in the 1720s, that material is now discussed in the middle of the current book, and then worked my way gradually backward and forward, mm. as, as I did the research over, over a period of years. Uh, and as I did so, I, I learned and I came to realize, for one, the the sheer financial and economic power wielded by the church in a conventional sense. Yes, we all know that the church owned at least 10% of landed property during this period. But the sheer intensity uh, as well as the extent of their financial dealings with the crown is, is, is quite amazing. And I would I've, I go so far as to suggest that the Catholic Church in France performed a function ana- analogous to that of the Bank of England mm. uh, in Britain. The French experimented with a Royal Bank in the time of John Law that experiment failed rather spectacularly. And so what the French kingdom was left with was the Catholic church as this lender of first and last resort. And this ecclesiastical lender supported the most expansive and the strongest economy on the European continent in the 18th century, one that extended to colonial holdings from North America to the Indian subcontinent. And we regularly dealt with Millions upon millions of, of livres, the currency of of the old regime, mm-hmm. uh, and beyond that, preachers gave not only spiritual advice but also financial advice from the pulpit. And the church was this linchpin in both private and public finance. At the same time, it viewed itself as the repository of massive, overwhelming spiritual wealth mm-hmm. in in the form of consecrated host and communion wine and holy water and relics and the ornate vessels uh, that were produced to convey them. And so I became interested in how those two understandings of wealth intersect.
1: So Charlie, you know, as you've already kind of elaborated on a bit, the central concern of this book is this convergence of spiritual and material wealth and the terminology you use to characterize this is economic theology. So can we sort of get real basic here and you can tell me what economic theology refers to?
0: Uh, Obviously the, the term is adopted and adapted from a more familiar one, political theology. Mm -hmm. And there are other scholars who have used the term. I I mean it in a a specific sense. In the first register, it's very literal insofar as one of the points of departure, interpretive points of departure for the book is that there is no way of consistently demarcating the economic from the theological during this period, perhaps in later periods as well. Hmm. But this brings me to Another point of departure, which is the relationship between the economic and the theological is radically contingent and that it changes over time. But one of the things I mean is that we can't trace an easy passage from, let's say, a pre-modern notion of a purely spiritual theology to a modern secular economy, even in the 18th century. Uh, which is the century usually identified with the emergence, the coalescence of political economy as a discrete field of knowledge, it was impossible to segregate or sequester theological questions and preoccupations from thinking about the production and distribution of wealth. And that was partly because the authors and the actors I address in the book thought of wealth in a polyvalent way. Mm. Uh, They didn't think of it first and foremost or purely in terms of money or in terms of commodities. They also thought of it in terms of the way objects of value were projected not only in mercantile or financial transactions, but also in political relationships and of course in sacramental or religious relationships. So Again, on a literal level, economic theology is meant to connote this imbrication of the theological and the economic throughout this period. Then I would say to be somewhat more analytical that by economic theology, I mean to refer to the kinds of belief that were invested in the economy as a means of spiritual redemption, but also material or financial redemption also a means of fulfillment, spiritual and material, but also the ways in which belief itself presumes a kind of economy. In my case, uh, the Catholic doctrine of Eucharistic transubstantiation, the doctrine that the consecrated bread and wine of the Eucharist become the actual body and blood of Christ in their entirety, I would say underwrote an understanding of the ways in which seemingly banal substances, mere bread, mere wine, could convey unspeakable value. And that this understanding of not only sacramental economy, but sacramental abundance served as a kind of template, it prefigured later, not only thought experiments, but also policy experiments in the financial sphere.
1: I just want to follow up. Well, in so many ways. Um, But the first thing I guess I want to ask, Charlie, is if theology and economy are imbricated in these ways, what is it that makes this period relative to... I mean, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a a more sophisticated way of saying this besides the whole pre-existing history of Christianity. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes the Age of Enlightenment a break? from centuries before.
0: Right. Of course, the argument of the monk does not turn on the the novelty of transubstantiation (laughs) as a doctrine uh, or the Eucharist or any of the other sacraments. But what I do want to argue is that one can detect a, a shift in the way those doctrines were articulated and understood in the wake of the Protestant challenge. Mm. The Council of Trent in the middle decades of the 16th century was a kind of doctrinal watershed, but the elaboration and the application of those doctrines took decades uh, to come about, particularly uh, in France. And Mm. so what I think one can see, beginning with Tridentine Catholicism, well, for one, there is this, unabashed affirmation of transubstantiation as the official, unassailable dogma of the church. Mm. And then the other looming context is economic, growing productive capacities across Europe, but particularly in in France and in Britain, and the emergence of what historians now routinely uh, call the consumer revolution. Mm -hmm. the possibility of consuming a quantity and a quality, a diversity of goods that would have been unfathomable even a century before. Theology, in a sense, was already economized, but it becomes economized in new ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, As the church, as institution, but also individual theologians find themselves confronting, for one, the need to justify the sanctity, sanctity of the church in terms of the spiritual goods that it purported to monopolize and to protect, but also in light of these new possibilities for material profusion.
1: So I've been... Moving around, and as I'm as I'm talking to you, Charlie, I'm sort of circling with my hand, and now I'm going I'm moving up the cover to the spirit of French capitalism. Oh, right. And I feel like we could talk. I mean, I could just talk to you for hours about the title of the book and all the different directions it it took me in as I was reading, and and the ways that it became clearer and clearer to me why the book is called the spirit of French capitalism as I was reading and moving through the chapters. It's it's a title that I liked when I saw it, but um it's really quite excellent by the time you finish the the book. So I want to ask you about that title in a few different ways as, as a way of getting at what you're getting at in this book. You make the argument, and you sort of set this up in the introduction, and you make the argument in various ways throughout the book that there was a Catholic and a French ethic of capitalism. And so I want to ask you the sort of obvious questions about the Frenchness of this Project And, you know, you you sort of started to talk about it when you were talking about the first book, you know, why France, not just France for you personally, but why France for this project. And then, of course, if the Catholic ethic of capitalism is a reference to Weber, you know, to, to kind of take us there and help us understand how this is a book about France, but how this is also a book that is a kind of response conversation dialogue with the notion of the Protestant ethic. Of capitalism.
0: All right, that is uh, an incredibly intricate question. I will. I will do my best. Um, So I'll start with Weber. Great. So, right, of course, the the title is a gloss on on Weber's uh, Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Like most books, it had various working titles, and I. I settled on the title that you see, partly in dialogue with my editors at Stanford. Um, the market, or at least some aspiration of a market, beckoned. Sure, but there there is meant to be a real substance to to the title. I think you're right to say that I want to enter into a dialogue um, with Weber rather than offer a repudiation. Mm-hmm. And. I should be even more specific that insofar as I have a quarrel in this dialogue, it's not so much with Weber as it is with a kind of Weberian paradigm in the literature on the relationship between religion and capitalism. Mm. And what I found in that literature for the most part, for one, was an attachment to Anglo-American exceptionalism, not only religious, but also uh, economic um and that exceptionalism uh did not leave much of a space for France which is a rather glaring omission particularly for the 18th century sure uh, it was only it was only in the final decades of the 18th century that uh the british economy began to outpace uh the french um and it was by no means a foregone conclusion necessarily for those who those actors on the ground and those observers in in the 18th century the other part of it had to do with The ways in which that Weberian paradigm had left its mark on even the French historiography. These are arguments that were devised for a different religious and geographical context. But what I found over and over is that, insofar as scholars were willing to plumb the depths of this admittedly fraught question, the relationship between religion and capitalism, what often happened is they would look for doctrines, or they would look for practices that reminded them of Weber's Puritans. Mm. And they were most likely to find them among the Jansenists. So the right. Jansenists were this heterodox movement within Catholicism. They were in no way Protestant, but they were they were often accused of being crypto-Calvinist, mm. um, given their attachment to the theology of St. Augustine. And there were a number of moral applications of this theology, including the things that we would associate with Weber's thesis, a penchant toward delayed gratification, saving, investment. And my sense was that, well, yes, that explains, I think, one side of a capitalist ethos, but certainly not all of it. Uh, And it doesn't apply as easily to, the phenomenon of the consumer revolution uh, that has been addressed quite extensively uh, and brilliantly by so many other scholars, and so you know, I thought that there was there was a need to cast beyond the Weberian paradigm, not merely to you know to fill a hole, as it were, but you know, to open up new new lines of inquiry into how capitalism operates as a cultural system uh, and as a cultural system that depends not only on a capacity for restraints and deferred gratification, but, but also on an impulse toward pleasure seeking and mm-hmm. toward the consummation of that pleasure in, in one's immediate presence. So why France? Well, I mean, partly this has to do with, you know, again, the, the sheer preponderance of French power in the 18th century, but it also has to do with the sheer expanse of the French economy and the role that the French Catholic Church, obviously, the Catholic Church as the name implies, cast well beyond France, but for centuries, the French had jealously guarded institutional privileges Uh, that were held by the French church distinctly, but also it has to do with the, I think, distinctive nature of French religious culture and political culture. And I don't think one can make hard and fast distinctions between the two for my period. French absolutism was in many ways a wager with French subjects to end the wars of religion. And the conclusion was that the only way out permanently was to codify mm. the absolute power wielded by the monarch, a power that was ordained by God. And so royal power could be seen as a kind of projection of divine power. If God was absolute in the heaven, so could the King of France be uh, in his realm and in those realms on which he set his sights. And in the case of Louis XIV, um, uh, those realms were numerous. Uh, he engaged in decades long wars to extend uh, French territory, but also French influence, not only uh, in Europe, but around the world. And the French church had an absolutely crucial role to play in making absolutism intelligible uh, as a kind of political theology, but it also had a crucial role to play in making what I'm calling the economic theology of absolutism legible, and practicable. Mm-hmm. Millions of people, uh, millions of different subjects were inundated uh, with teachings about the nature of the spiritual wealth with which they were communing. But this was spiritual wealth that also was instantiated materially
2: mm-hmm. in
0: the form of the consecrated host, but also in the form of indulgence that were issued. And it's not as though one doesn't see similar kinds of practices in other Catholic territories. But what you do see in France is a sheer scale. Right, you know, The consumer revolution in France dwarfed what you see in another Catholic country. So, so it has to do with this contingent conjuncture of a distinctly French style of politics, absolutism, with a distinctly French style of Catholicism, which was Gallicanism. And then with a consumer revolution that could be pursued in France, given its productive capacities to a far greater extent than you would see in, let's say, Spain or uh, the Italian states during the same period.
1: I want to ask you, Charlie, about the Enlightenment, just a small matter (laughs) of the Enlightenment, Um, and the ways that this book is also a kind of response to not just histories of capitalism, but histories of, well, I'll just use the term modernity, (laughs) that Really mm-hmm. emphasize um, at some point in the book. I think you you list this trio of dechristianization, desacralization, disenchantment for the French context. But you know, I think we can think of those things even more generally for the the emergence of of a certain type of capitalism and a certain type of modernity, as as historians and others would make arguments about these things. And so, I, I guess I'm wondering how the emphases of this project. How you see them as contributing to a to an interrogation, to a reformulation, to a sort of reinterpretation of what we might think of when we think of the Enlightenment.
0: I mean, I, perhaps I should say, as a kind of preface, I myself was somewhat surprised by—I don't know if I should say—the the short shrift that the Enlightenment gets in this book. It, <laughs> it certainly is not a testament. It is not a testament to my training. Right. Uh, by, by any means. Um, it was more where I felt the sources were taking me. Right. I was also responding to certain historiographical tendencies uh, to which your question alluded. There has been this resurgence uh, of interest and really, really vibrant scholarship done on the history of 18th century and enlightenment political economy. Uh, and I've followed that literature and those scholars with, with great interest. Mm. But what struck me again and again was an almost complete silence on theological questions. Mm. And it's not as though theology uh, met a quiet end somewhere around 1750 and was <laughs> never heard from again. So there was that. But then what I what struck me as also somewhat curious was that at the same time that we can witness this resurgence in an interest in, if not economic history, at least the history of economic thought. There was also this revitalization of the religious history of the period.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But those two developments seem to develop in tandem, yes, but without a great deal of mutual influence. And so one of the things that I sought to do in this book was well, there's, my, there's my dialogue with Weber, right? But then there was also the dialogue that I was attempting to foster between historians of religious culture and historians of political economy. And to go back to your earlier question about, about France and the relevance of the French case here, mm-hmm. you know, France is usually presented as the place where the Enlightenment was the most antithetical to religion, the most Uh anti-clerical, where there was the least possibility for synthesis between traditional religious and theological preoccupation uh, and Enlightenment thought. What I suppose I've done or tried to do in this book, as I did in the first book, virtues of Abandon, is find a middle ground that wasn't really so much about moderates talking to each other. Usually it was about Radicals on either side of the religious or philosophical divide, uh, not necessarily speaking um, as fellow travelers, but as but in opposition to each other, mm. but doing so in a way that was incredibly generative. I didn't want to merely retell the wonderful histories that are that have been written and that are being written on enlightenment political economy. I wanted to show that that history had incredibly significant theological implications that were recognized by political economists themselves at the time. And the case that I refer, to, refer back to again and again in the book is Torgot,
2: mm-hmm.
0: arguably the, the single most important and influential political economist in France in the 18th century, uh, who originally trained as a theologian. Yeah. And throughout his career, his very long career, not only as an intellectual, but as an administrator, weighed in on debates in which the church was a prominent player, even debates over the frequency of communion, you know, Torgo weighed in on early in his career. Mm-hmm. And then later on debates over usury, lending and interest that remained an incredibly powerful and fraught issue, not only for secular law, not only for political economy, but also for canon law. Mm-hmm. And in France in the 18th century, canon law had the status of civil law. So it wasn't something that could be, shunted aside, uh, the church's traditional prohibitions um, or limitations on the lending at interest. Uh, so I found this quite quite telling mm-hmm. that a figure like, like Turgot wasn't merely moving from one realm to the other in some kind of definitive, unidirectional you know, way, but kept going back right. to these theological questions that had economic significance and to these economic questions Sorry, into these theological questions that have economic interest, and these economic questions that have theological interest. That the two were mutually implicated, and you know, Turgot seemed to recognize this. And so it does. I I don't think that it. I don't think that it overturns the history of political economy, but I think it does add a significant. Well, at least I hope it adds a significant supplement to that history.
1: So as as you've just spoken about, Charlie Turgot plays an important role in the book. Can we talk a little bit about who the other authors and voices are that you're pursuing in the book? Like, Who, who are the, should I say, economic theologians or theological economists? Um, whichever one you want, or maybe those two things are different. Um, who, are, who are they?
0: Well, if, if you mean figures who would be recognizable to historians of economic thought rather than figures who would be more familiar to theologians, as theologians, mm-hmm. uh, I would I would begin probably with uh, John Law mm-hmm. in the seventeen teens uh, and seventeen twenties, partly because he he cast such a long shadow over the history of finances, not only in France but I think I think across Europe for much of well, not only eighteenth century but well beyond. Uh, he was a Scotsman by birth, became a naturalized French subject, converted to Catholicism, uh, and then ascended all the way to the position of Controller General of Finances, the, the most powerful financial position in the kingdom, but really the most powerful administrative position in the kingdom. Beyond the, the practical reforms that he tried to institute, which involved the establishment, as I mentioned before, a royal bank, but also the move toward what we would think of as a fiat currency that would be unmoored from from bullion from either gold or silver he also wrote a series of theoretical uh, memoirs meant to justify uh, these decisions so you know we we have from law not only a kind of history of policy but also this this corpus of economic thought related to to public finance uh, that continued to circulate long after his system collapsed and he was forced to flee France, quite literally under cover of darkness uh, in 1720. Mm. What I hope to add to discussions, and there have been incredibly rich discussions about law system, is the way in which a knowledge of sacramental economies, but even understandings of Catholic understandings of alchemy, figured in the way the system and the banks issued by laws, sorry, the bills issued by laws banks uh, were received and understood by French subjects. And so I'm interested not only in the theory per se, but also these attempts to put those theories in practice. Uh, And another figure whom I discussed there is Jean Terrasson, who Mm -hmm. was not an economist by training. He was a theologian and he was a literary figure. Uh, but he wrote a series of public letters meant to justify law system at this crucial juncture. Some of the figures are well known, uh, but particularly to intellectual historians of the 18th century, but usually aren't thought of first and foremost as, as economic thinkers. And so <laughs> here uh, Rousseau uh, comes to mind. And so I tried to make the case for uh, Rousseau not only as a political theorist, but also uh, as an economic thinker and perhaps even as an economic theologian. I, I draw on those places in his writings where he talks about money, where he talks about uh, economic relations, uh, but also where he, he talks about idealized sites of production, including in uh, Julie, where he presents this image of a kind of idealized farm and the way it would operate. I'm attentive to his own understanding of the way value can be conjured and Circulate through seemingly mysterious means, and and do so in ways that that not only produce stratification or economic defend, dependence, but, but might actually underwrite a kind of a kind of abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later. I focused yes on Turgot, but also the Physiocrats, um, with whom was Turgot was associated, but he was not strictly speaking an acolyte. So here, François Canet, the founder of the Physiocrats, the primary enforcer of their economic orthodoxy, and so there, I'm I'm interested in the way the Physiocrats treat land as this potential source of infinite value creation and the way they understand the function of land and value creation within an increasingly monetized economy. So yeah, those are all thinkers that I think would be recognizable in the 18th century. And then later on um, in the epilogue of of the book, I I turn, well, I also mentioned him early in the introduction, but at the end, I I also turn to Marx Mm -hmm. as a, well, in in my argument, a kind of latter day exponent of these debates uh, within economic theology.
1: Let's talk a little bit, Charlie, about the structure of the book and, you know, all of the different things that these six chapters take on. We've talked a little bit already about, you know, what an important role uh, the Eucharist plays. And really it's the focus of those first two chapters in in different ways. Um, How did you think through how to structure the book? Um, and how to sort of divide it up into these considerations of that emphasis on the Eucharist, the question of speculation, usury, and then moving towards the discussion of consumption and luxury and fetish. Like, did, how did that come together? I'm going to assume it was hard.
0: <laughs> it was hard and it was halting, but also somewhat organic. Hmm. I mean, I it was a process that took place over you know, a period of years. As I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, the, my research for the book started with what is now the chapter on John Law's system. And what struck me originally was I kept finding all of these references to alchemy and even occasionally to the Eucharist. What began is my attempt to contextualize those references that I didn't completely understand when I first encountered them gradually became a corpus really. Um, and I realized I had a whole chapter just on the economic theology of the Eucharist. Mm. And then I realized, well, speaking of um, the, the Catholic ethic of profusion and abundance, I realized I didn't only have one chapter, two <laughs> chapters. Um, right. Essentially on not only Eucharistic theology, but also the practice of Euchar- Eucharistic theology in these confraternities, in the adoration of the host, uh, in debates over the frequency of communion. You know, these, were, these were matters that not only drew the attention of you know, bishops and ecclesiastical authorities, but also political authorities uh, throughout this period. And so the research for the chapters unfolded yes, somewhat organically My moving back deeper into the 17th century to get at Eucharistic theology, but also doctrinal practice. Um, in the 17th and then later the 18th centuries. Then the question really became, what would follow uh, the chapter on the rise and fall of John Law's system? Mm -hmm. And there I I experimented with a number of possibilities. I at one point thought the book would have a whole chapter, believe it or not, on the French Revolution. Uh, And I I realized that 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 was utter folly, that there was no way (laughs) that it would fit. And, well, that was a question I was going to ask
1: you about, like,
0: what about yeah. the French?
1: So now I know what happened.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, it, it, I haven't forgotten about it. So <laughs> we, we can talk about the French Revolution uh, later. But so essentially what happened is I, I wrote the chapters on, on usury and then the chapters five and six. So chapter five is on uh, essentially the consumer revolution, the role of devotional objects in mm. the consumer revolution. And then the sixth chapter is on debates over luxury, which was this lightning rod of polemic in the eighteenth century. Hundreds of books you know, were written on on the luxury debate. Sure. Initially, all that material was supposed to be in one chapter. Um, obviously it would fit, so <laughs> once again, one chapter becomes two, and then it was at that point that I started to see a potential arc that would lead me to the fetish character of commodities,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that would lead me to Marx, but in a way that I hoped would historicize Marx uh, as, as much as it was a matter of my allowing myself and my analyses to be informed by Marx.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's, that's how I chose to end the way I did. And it was also, I mean, it was, I don't know if it was sufficient, but it was my way of also gesturing beyond the French context that I focus much of the book on to show that there is a much wider, even a global you know, history of these kinds of questions that would take very different iterations in different times and places, but even suggesting that we can understand something About Marx by putting him in the frame of economic theology was, it was meant as something of a metonym for how the kinds of themes that the book attempts to broach might be considered on a broader scale.
1: It's really interesting, Charlie, learning how it happened for you, because, of course, I didn't know about, um, it's the third chapter that you're saying the book sort of grew out of. Is that the chapter on the spirit of speculation. That's right. Right. So not knowing that, as I was reading, and again, I'm, I'm always, you're, you may be picking up on my, you know, I'm always a little bit self-conscious when I speak with people who work on centuries previous to the ones that I'm most familiar with, that I'm asking the most naive and ridiculous questions or having the most, you know, uninformed responses to their work. But by the time I got to the end of the book, and there were certainly hints and and, and suggestions of this as I was going, I really felt that the book, that one way of understanding the arc of the book is to understand the whole thing as a genealogy of commodity fetishism. <laughs> that's what it felt like to me reading it. Yeah, I guess I just wonder what you think of that. I think that's right. Yes. Okay, I mean, so yeah. I got I mean, it. So You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's,
0: but that only, that only occurred to me fairly huh. late uh, in, in the composition. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, I of course then did some rewriting right. and recasting. I had other endings in mind as I was writing. Like I said, I, there was this looming prospect of making it all the way to the French Revolution. Instead, what I do is I essentially leapfrog over it, going right. from the final substantive chapter to the epilogue to get, to get to Marx. And so, yeah, it was only yeah, it was only really as I was writing. The final couple of chapters that I realized, oh yes, this is what I've been <laughs> aiming at this whole time. But I was I was very late to the party, all puns intended, since we're talking about Marx.
1: Once I got to the end of the book and realized that what you were what the what it felt like the book was aiming for by the end, it it made more sense to me that the revolution doesn't doesn't have that same place um, and it isn't where the book ends
0: good. I mean, I always feel, I feel, I, feel I, mean, I, I mean, I'm not even Catholic, but I do feel guilty you know, that, I, that I bypassed the revolution, but that, I mean, that's really what I, what I'm trying to do now is write a kind of a sequel to this book that, that focuses squarely on the revolutionary decade. And you know, it turns the axis where the, the terminus is no longer commodity fetishism, but really the the relationship between property and sovereignty mm. and how the fate of ecclesiastical property figured in those questions. And just to say very quickly, one of the things that has amazed me, I've seen these references both to alchemy, the philosopher's stone, and to the real presence of the Eucharist in debates over the Assignan. Huh. Yeah. I did I wasn't aware of those until more recently, but I, I think that there there will be lines of continuity between this book and the next that I hadn't anticipated.
1: So it's a trilogy that's coming together. <laughs> perhaps. Well, actually, maybe.
0: I mean, I, I have another book <laughs> even after the revolution that, that charts sort of the career of economic theology into the 19th, perhaps even the early 20th century and the way it informs the emergence of social democracy. But that's really nothing more than a figment of my imagination at this point.
1: I want to linger for a bit on a couple of things that run throughout the book, ideas that are there in the theological and the economic realms and their intersections, the possibilities of endless wealth generation, uh, accumulation. I mean, of course, that leads us into questions and issues of luxury. But even before that, that sense that those in particular, wealth, abundance and enjoyment, and the way that you explore this, this notion of Catholic jouissance. Could you say a little bit about, I don't know, that spectrum of accumulation, pleasure, enjoyment, um, and mm-hmm. how that runs throughout the book?
0: Yeah, and I think you know, this question resonates powerfully with the question you asked about Weber. Mm-hmm. I suppose I, I pose Marx to a certain degree as an antidote to Weber, but I also pose at various points uh, Bataille, and his distinction between a general economy and a restricted economy. Not to be too vulgar about it, but the in the book I'm far more interested in the prospect of a general economy, economy that's predicated on abundance, on infinite expansion, but that's also shot through with sacrifice. Mm. But it's not, it's not sacrifice in terms of self-denial or deferred gratification, but rather a kind of glorying in expenditure it doesn't surprise me that Bataille was a Catholic and was, I think, steeped in this distinctly French economic theological tradition. And it flies in the face of what many of us learn sitting through microeconomics, where one of the first things you learn is that economics is the science of scarcity. And yes, that's partly true, but there's this whole other side, I think, to, again, capitalism as a Cultural system that insist on, if not the reality, then I think what winds up amounting to the same thing, the fantasy of unbridled consumption, heedless consumption.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, one of the one of the aims of the book is to try to historicize mm-hmm. those impulses and yes, I mean to apply a kind of historical genealogy to them insofar as I want to show their somewhat unexpected, perhaps even unlikely origins in Catholic theology, in Catholic theology of the Eucharist, places where you wouldn't necessarily expect to see such sensuality. Mm-hmm. But one does in the sources, even if even if that sensuality is somewhat guarded or hesitant, where, I mean, I, I feel like I saw this again and again in the sources, where a, theolog- a theologian will start waxing poetic about the splendors of the Eucharist and using increasingly visceral language and then will almost catch himself and add a rejoinder before then slipping back into these quite arresting depictions of absolute gratification, a kind of perfect pleasure that never dissipates, that that never grows tired or never becomes an object of revulsion. It seems to me that even well, certainly in the 18th century, but it, even now we, we seem to carry that prospect either consciously or unconsciously in our heads. Mm. And I mean, this casts somewhat beyond the stated subject matter of the book, but I mean, how else to, or at least it's one way to understand our compulsion to consume you know, a bunch of trifles that <laughs> could never possibly hold out the promise that they seem to hold um, mm-hmm. when we when we put our money down or our credit cards down and and uh, buy them through debt. So 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 yeah, I was yeah trying to get at a side of economic thinking, a side of economic practice, but also a, a kind of side of economic aspiration that I think is often well, it's either not addressed at all or is dismissed as as pathological, but I seem to think that the pathology is necessary for the economic body to function.
1: So, Charlie, I, I feel like I've been restraining myself from asking this question, but you've now made it impossible for me to do that any longer. I have to ask about, in terms of how you're reading and how you're thinking about these materials and questions, you know, this, the psychoanalytic. I kept reaching for it in my mind as I was reading the book, and I just wonder if in the various texts and notions you bring to bear on this material, what of the psychoanalytic? I feel like it's all over over the place, but is that just me? <laughs> I don't think it's just you. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, I mean, I do use the term jouissance over and over again. Yes. Um, but I also see that, that term used in, in my sources, right? Sure. It's, it's not the absolute provenance of Lacan, yeah. right? Well, I guess what I would say, especially when it comes to Lacan, is that I could imagine a different version of my epilogue where I don't end with Marx and Benjamin. I also extend the analysis to Lacan. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I chose not to do that partly out of sheer lack of competence uh, and, and not feeling that I could ever do do justice to those traditions, but, but also because... Uh, yeah, I mean, I was somewhat wary of alienating you know certain readers, mm-hmm. but it was also, I mean, it was it wasn't just a tactical decision. It was it was it was also a principled principled one. In yeah. that I honestly don't think, and I you know I, I don't I don't think this is just my being symptomatic here. I mean, that what I had in mind, either consciously or unconsciously, as I was putting the book together, were questions of desire, exactly in the way someone like. You know, Lacan might understand them. Though I can certainly see how someone who wants to use Lacan as a way of getting at the compulsion of capitalist consumption would find what I have to say in the book interesting mm-hmm. as a kind of, as providing a kind of broader context.
1: As I was reading the book, Charlie, it became clearer and clearer to me. I mean, I might always ask authors about for various reasons about the role that gender plays in the in the histories or other stories that they're they're telling. But it became more clear to me that I wanted to ask you that question when we spoke as I was reading the book. And especially by the time I got to the end, you know, these questions of the feminization of luxury, of credit, of excess, of abundance, like all of these things. And then thinking about those things happening, those conversations happening in the 17th and 18th centuries. And so I I know that, you know, the speakers, the authors, the things that you're thinking about, you know, it's easy to just say oh well, you know, they're mostly male authors or I guess I wonder how you think about the role of women as subjects of economy and religion through the period that the book covers and the debates and questions that it explores. And then also, yeah, the metaphorics of the feminine throughout throughout this project.
0: Absolutely. So I I try to show that there was a deeply gendered dimension to economic theology during this period, and it runs throughout the period, you know, from the mid-17th century all the way through the 18th. And you're absolutely right that French clerics, for the most part, men tended to associate pathological consumption what they would refer to as luxury with a kind of effeminate allure and with with the tendency of women in particular to consume out of a desire for ostentatious display so as a as a sign of their corrupted and corruptible pride and there was this real concern on the part of theologians that that women were this kind of vector mm. um, of pathological consumption that could affect the broader social body. And there's a Christian iteration of that argument. There is a classical iteration of that argument. And they converge uh, in the luxury debate of the 1760s, 1770s. But I I wanted to do more than, you know, point out the obvious mm-hmm. misogyny. I mean, <laughs> it's just say that the there's a great deal of, dis- I mean, use another psycho- psychoanalytic category, but there's a lot of displacement going on by these male clerics um, pathologizing the very luxury that they themselves are immersed in by associating with, with women. There was a great deal of protesting too much. But I, I was trying to also address this gender dimension at a somewhat, I hope at a somewhat deeper level, mm. and argue that what you yes, what you do see, even in the seventeenth century, but throughout the period, as a kind of association of the feminine and luxury. Actually by the time you get to the second half of the eighteenth century, to those decades we associate with the emergence of political economy, is a way in which the the dynamics that had once been associated first and foremost with with women had become these more general propositions about economic consumption and the relations that consumption entailed. So one can think about it almost in terms of expanding concentric circles of the fetish. Hmm. Uh, that that something that was once seen as somehow distinctly feminine gets generalized and I think increasingly naturalized. And universalized, but there's there always remains a kind of trace of its origins, particularly in the minds of critics like like Rousseau, mm. but later even in, in in the mind of someone like like Marx, um, who is too desperate to to denaturalize uh, and to and to historicize phenomenon that increasingly were seen as inevitable. And one way, one way of understanding those critical overtures is precisely by attending to this gender dimension. And that's, I think, particularly ironic in the case of someone like Rousseau, uh, who Hmm. was notorious um, then as now for his misogyny. But there was this whole other side of his thinking, particularly in the discourse on the origin of inequality, where I think he opens up another path that he himself doesn't consistently pursue. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it leaves it to figures like Marx, I think, to do do that work in a more systematic fashion.
1: I just want to come back, Charlie, to something because i I just I feel like I can't let the part of our conversation about the book end without coming back to it. It a part of the book that I found surprise, I mean, not surprising in the sense that you hadn't that it didn't connect, but that I just didn't expect to. Read a, a chapter when I, you know, I was coming into the book, I just wasn't expecting to to get this chapter that is focused on uh, devotional objects and the idea of the rosary as a commodity. And the reason I want to linger on it for a moment is that I think that there's a way in which the project here connects to material history, but also to a kind of social and cultural history of this period. And I and I just wanted to give you a chance to say a little bit more about. Working on that and that coming out of this this project, how you how you ended up working on on that aspect of things. It was partly
0: where where the sources led me. So w- once I started doing research on the confraternities, there were hundreds if not thousands of confraternities devoted to the Eucharist, particularly in the earlier period. But what one sees into the 18th century is. Those Eucharistic confraternities get eclipsed by confraternities devoted to the Rosary, mm. uh, and so I realized I would I would have to make some foray into into the Rosary as a devotional object, and consider the way it was produced, the way that production was regulated, where they were sold,
2: mm-hmm.
0: how they were sold, the reason for choosing the the Rosary had to do with the critical mass of organized devotions that involved it.
2: Mm.
0: Now, there were contingent reasons that appealed to me as well, that it lent itself, I thought, to studying as a kind of populux good, as, you know, as as an object that yes, could be produced out of incredibly fine materials, but could also be made with the cheapest of materials, with with simple wood, but would nonetheless be seen as having uh, the same spiritual windfalls. And this leads me to another reason why I was attracted to devotional objects. And it's because there were these confraternities, there were these organized observances. And so there were these manuals written, devotional manuals for uh, comporting myself in the confraternity, the kinds of devotions one should do. And then the spiritual advantages that one would glean from it, including the issuing of indulgences that would essentially relieve one of the temporal penalties for one's sins. Mm -hmm. So there was a way in which the usury also participated, yes, in a material economy in which the object was produced and sold and bought, but also in this spiritual economy that had to do with the debt of sin. Mm -hmm. My hope there was that we have all this work on consumer revolution and so much great social history that that shows us in a quantitative sense, the sheer ex, you know, the expansion of the quantity and quality of goods that were owned. But we have relatively less evidence on the spiritual and, yes, even psychic mechanisms involved in consumption. Mm. So I wanted to treat these devotional manuals as providing not a perfect empirical base, but more of an empirical base than one can normally find for such an object. One won't find a similar literature with the same kind of detail having to do with, let's say, pocket watches uh, or with snuff boxes. It was obvious why I would look to devotional objects given the subject matter of the book in terms of economic theology. But I was also hoping to address what, what I thought was still a subject that could do with greater ex- excavation. And, and, and that has to do with the, the way people understood their own acts of consumption. We don't usually have you know a letter where someone writes, I purchased a rosary today, and these are the feelings I have. But we do have these manuals that were instructing people how to feel. Mm -hmm. rather than project, you know, my own views of consumption uh, onto uh, these women and men who were consuming these devotional objects. This at least gives me some point of departure for how uh, they might have understood what they were doing.
1: As you say, it's not surprising that that you turn to them in the book. I think what I admire about that chapter in particular is the way that it brings together. Well, I mean, they all do this in different ways around bread, wine, around bills, around coins right here, around the rosary, um, and other devotional objects, the way that you're bringing, for lack of a better way to phrase it, like abstraction and 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 the material and, you know, the lived experience of these ideas together.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And also trying to, how do I put this, traverse a distance between, I mean, not only objects, but usually very basic and simple objects, you know, bread, wine, beads, Mm -hmm. uh, and the the exquisite riches that were associated with them. And I think, I don't know if the contrast would have been quite as stark or quite as revealing had I chosen only reliquaries that were cast in gold.
1: Yeah. And if part of the thing that you're pursuing in the project is an understanding of, well, not just the inflation of value, but that's part of it, but you know, how, how value is understood in economic and theological terms, then it becomes, well, not an extreme object, but, but an object that, as you say, allows you to to look at that vast distance between the wealth and abundance, like spiritual wealth and abundance, and then something that seems like a very simple everyday, potentially, depending on what it's made of and whose it is.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it allows me to play with the seeming discrepancy between use value and exchange value.
1: Charlie, there are so many other questions that I would love to ask you, but I'm just gonna well follow up, I guess, uh, on on one that we sort of touched on earlier, which is you know what you're working on now, and what's next for you in this series of projects.
0: Yeah, so as I as I mentioned, I I think I'm I'm finally in a position where I can start working on <clears throat> the French Revolution um, in earnest, and actually some of the research that I. That I did for the spirit of French capitalism that didn't make it into the book is now serving as a kind of you know first installment uh, on the work that remains to be done. So, so I'm interested in essentially the economic theology of the French Revolution and you know, beginning with the contested status of ecclesiastical property uh, in the final years of the old regime and then the first years of the revolution. Of course, you know, culminating in the decision to to nationalize church property and then essentially use that property as the capital for the asignat as uh, first a bond but then as um, as, a, as a as a fiat currency so the the book begins with the debates over ecclesiastical property the the status of the asignat understandings of it but i i can imagine subsequent chapters that in some ways mirror material that i addressed in the earlier period in the spirit of French capitalism. So, for example, revolutionary ephemera, consumer objects that were made uh, as a way for consumer citizens to make manifest their faith in the new regime, not only as a political uh, arrangement, but also as an economic arrangement Mm -hmm. that, of course, was bound up in This sale of church property, property that traditionally was seen as sacred.
1: Charlie, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me about this book and for writing it.
0: Thank you. It was my pleasure.